This is Our American Stories, and we love to bring you the stories of our men and women in uniform. And now Jesse brings us the story of a nonprofit organization that puts guitars into the hands of war veterans. Thousands of war veterans are afflicted with PTSD. More soldiers have committed suicide since the Vietnam War than have died in actual battle. 22 veterans commit suicide every day, but a lot of them are finding some hope by playing the guitar. It's pretty simple. It's a program called Guitars for Vets, and it helps provide the guitars and free lessons. Check this out. Alpha Delta Echo. And E for Echo. We're a, a, a nonprofit. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. We were started 10 years ago, and we give guitar lessons to veterans. And we have found over the course of the 10 years that if you have problems, if, you, if you're having issues coping, or if, if life just becomes stressful, playing the guitar helps. Teachers donate their time, and uh, companies donate the uh, guitars and you know tuners and whatever, what have you, and. Uh, it's good therapy, if nothing else. It's good therapy for uh, post-traumatic stress, for therapy for anything that ails you. I don't know how many of you are musicians or how many of you play, but those that do will understand what I'm talking about when I say you can pick up a guitar and start playing, and the next thing you know, two hours is gone. And it's like, where did that go? Well, you're at peace for those two hours. You're having a good time, your mind quiets down, and things just become okay. And this is how it helps veterans with PTSD. It helps quiet them down and it helps them feel good about themselves and have a positive experience. Started coming to the VA. I come here for about 10 years and then I found out about the recreation program and that they offer guitar lessons. So I took them, I took the 10, 10 lessons. I think it was one of the best things I did. It's very good for me. The guitar helps you even if all you're doing is plucking the strings. It helps bring out whatever it is emotionally that you're trying to relax out of you. For me, I enjoy the company myself. It's a very good group of guys. I mean, I mean, these guys, these guys know what they're doing. Some of our better instructors have been minimalist guitar players. They may be the first position chords or whatever, but they're so good teaching people, and they they you, you, they can guide people through it, and they can make them feel like it's a success. The program is supposed to be a positive learning experience for everybody, so you don't want to make anybody feel like they failed or they're not keeping up with the program. It's just it's supposed to be enjoyable. It's supposed to be fun. And the, that's really what you need from an instructor is the ability to communicate that and be patient and empathetic with what the veterans are going through. It's a difficult thing for to find an instructor who has the flexibility to teach somebody who have who doesn't have any vision and figure out a way to show me how to play a guitar and I will say it was a uh, it was a good experience for both of us it made him a better teacher and it also made me a better student he was trying to teach me how to finger pick so I enjoyed it I could listen to him all day just finger pick on their music, so it's good. Are you a pretty good finger picker now? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to do. And 
but I still try. When I'm home, I try. It seems to me that the, the, the instrument tells you what type of music you're going to play. So I ended up, when I was taking piano lessons and playing piano, I would play love songs. I thought it would be the same that my guitar, I would learn how to play love songs on the guitar. But that's not true. The guitar said, you're going to play the blues. So I ended up playing the blues with the guitar. It just helps you calm down and de-stress. And it is, it's the best de-stressor I know of. And believe me, I, I, I use it at home all the time. But I would say you've got nothing to lose by doing it. It's, it's just, it's, it's a great program. And, and we know it helps. We know it can help you. So, you know. All non-judgmental. Come in and enjoy. Now, Guitars for Vets has fulfilled over 25,000 lessons and distributed over 2,500 guitars for free to military veterans. If you want to help out by donating $200, you can send one veteran through the program. That's guitarsforvets.org, and this is Our American Stories. And again, that's guitarsforvets.org. And by the way, this could just be something that you should think about for yourself or your family. Uh, an instrument, playing it, what it can do for you. That's why we spend so much time on music here on this show, and we spend a lot of time on vets. Jesse's really good at bringing disparate things that we care about together. I know another program that's uh, dealing with equestrians for vets up in Memphis. My little girl does that, and teaches vets how to ride, gets them at peace. And that's what we're all looking for in the end, is that inner peace. It's half of why we do this show here in Our American Stories. No screaming, no yelling. We've heard from so many of you uh, the thanks that you get for our tone, for the way we carry ourselves. Uh, And in this day and age, it's just hard to come across things that put you at peace. And so thanks again, Jesse, for finding this. Pick up a guitar one day. Go get an old used piano. Just start playing it. Just start strumming it. Just start tickling the keyboards. I like to do nothing better at my home. This is Our American Stories, Guitar for Vets. And by the way, this shows what so many people here do with their free time in this country. And as they give of their time, it's not always their money they can give, but my goodness, we can give of our time. Guitarsforvets.org, their story, these soldiers' stories who've been helped and healed by this ministry. And it is a ministry here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything, as you know, but we love talking about music and telling stories about music and every kind of music, from classical to rock to country, and in this particular instance, hip-hop. And our next story comes to us from the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan, where there's a growing underground music scene, and today we're talking with a hip-hop producer in this particular scene. Here's Monty Montgomery with the story. Detroit, Michigan is known for a lot of things. From Greektown to Motown, and everything from Cars, Werner's Ginger Ale, and its potholes in between. But Detroit also has a booming hip-hop scene. And today we sit down with one person involved in the production end of all of this. My name is Mitchell Biggs. I'm from southeastern Michigan. I grew up about 30 minutes out of Detroit. And I make sample-based hip-hop music and I don't know what to call it. You could say low-fidelity house music. So sample-based hip-hop is basically I'll take an old record, something from, I mean, who knows when. It could be anywhere from the 50s to even just last decade. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that's been out for a long time. And I'll take that record and I'll flip it in some way. I'll speed it up, I'll slow it down, and I have a sampler that basically allows me to chop up the record. And then I replay the original melody in a new form. My dad calls it stealing with extra steps, but that's basically what I do. I sample a lot of old acapella groups. I sample a lot of a lot of soul music. And then the low fidelity house element is I take elements of house music, a lot of repetitive kick drums, a lot of consistent grooves, and I mix it with a lot of lower quality sounds, just in so far as it won't sound like something that is crisp and clean like you might hear on the radio or that you might hear in, in one of your favorite albums. It's usually gonna be a bit, you could call it uglier, I guess. You know, the sound quality's lower and that's part of the appeal. It gives it this warmth and this nice character. Samples I like the most come from the records that I love the most and that I appreciate the most. I really do think that that it's true that you can just sample a record and you can just take a sound or a piece of it that you like and not really sit with it. But I really like to listen to the album and experience it front to back. One album that I particularly love is By the Silvers. Uh, they switch between acapella and what you could call, I guess you could call it soul. And they have a lot of big band behind them. And I listen to that record all the time. Part of when you're sampling a record is you you want to listen to it and in my opinion you want to feel like you really resonate with what's being made in the original you know it's not just about getting a good sound it's not just about finding something easy to to flip you want to find something that you find genuinely compelling you know that you that you listen to it and you think wow this really says something about the human experience or speaks to my experience and, and you want to sample it in that way and for mitchell music has always been a part of life. So I've been playing since I was a kid. I started playing bass. I think I was maybe nine. And from there, I started picking up other elements of percussion, got into guitar. I've never been a singer, although I did recently try my hand at that. I'm not much of a singer, but I really do love instrumentation. And so that sort of segued about two years ago, I'd say. I was living out in DC. I was actually living in Fairfax and I was commuting to DC for work. 
and I spent a lot of time in this relatively empty dorm room. And so I had a lot of free time. I had a lot of time on my own. And so I started getting into making beats and, and there were musicians that I had particularly loved that sort of inspired me. I, I enjoyed their music so much and I thought I could, I could make something like that. And so I started doing a lot of emulation of the artists that I enjoy the most. And then slowly but surely over the last two years, I sort of developed and ironed out my own sound. And Mitchell would move from the dorm room to his hand-built home studio to record his first album with his childhood friend and rapper Merrick, a collaborative effort. Mitchell now takes us inside the recording process of a hip-hop album. It was a short album. It was only seven songs, but each song was relatively long, and there was a pretty consistent theme across the project of... If I had to summarize it, I would say for Merrick, it was a lot about making peace with childhood trauma and uh, mending situations with his parents. And for me, because I had made the beats, a lot of it was just figuring out how to make music. I'd say the greatest challenge when working on that album with Merrick was him and I both have very different workflows, I guess you could say. I made all the beats well before we started recording. You know, so I had had a lot of time from day one when I made the first beat to when I made the last one to sort of work through the process and to put everything together. And so I wasn't on as much of a time crunch as he was because once we finished the beats and he had written the verses, he wanted to record. We wanted to finish the project. And at the time, we were coming into Christmas break. It was the start of December. And our idea was to record the album over the entirety of break. But Merrick was having a hard time getting back into the headspace that he was in when he wrote the original verse. You know, sometimes you capture something in the moment and you want to emulate it later and you can't. You can't recreate it because what was happening in that moment has came and went. And so he was trying to bring back up a lot of feelings and emotions and presentation and he just wasn't happy with any of his takes. And we kept going over and over and over. And during that time, I made changes to the beats because I could. and. And so I was working through the beats, he was working through his verse, and we didn't end up finishing it that Christmas break, and we wouldn't end up finishing the album until that summer. When you hear the finished product, there's a couple things that you walk away from it with. At first, it seems like the project has been, it's always was going to be this way. You know, you never hear any of the outtakes, you never hear any of the early mixes of the beats. And so when you're actually making the album, you know, we changed our setup a lot. When we first started in December, we had a lot of friends over, you know, we were partying, you know what I mean? We were hanging out, we were having a good time. And that was just not the environment for Merrick to basically spill his heart out over, you know, his, his parents' divorce and whatnot. And so the environment that we had cultivated really didn't lend itself towards the type of experience we were going for. On my end, I didn't. I thought the recording process was a blast because everything I had to do was over. But then once Merrick expressed that this environment really wasn't working for what he was trying to do, we ended up changing the whole layout. And so we made it a bit more cozy. We set up more candles. We put up more blankets and stuff like that just to give it a warmer environment than a Michigan basement. And I was barely downstairs for a, a large portion of the recording process. I would be in another room hanging out, doing whatever, just to give Merrick as much alone time, personal space as possible. And that's one more aspect of recording I want to touch on. 
is that when you're making a rap verse, it's very hard to record part of the verse and then record another part later and then another part later. You know, a big part of rapping is the flow of the words. There's poetry to it. Uh, it is poetry. And, and it's very difficult to pick up in the middle of a verse and try and record from there and get the same energy, get the same cadence that you would have had if you started from the beginning. So that was the really hard part. Was It wasn't just about getting any one part of the verse of the chorus right. It was about getting the entire verse, the entire chorus right on one take. And that can be really hard to do. I think what that experience taught me was personally, on the one hand, I don't have to recreate anything in a recording studio. You know, I don't have to, it's not so much a performance for me. I can work on it easily. It's hard for me to get out of my zone when I'm making a beat because there's not a whole lot that I have to do live. And so when I worked on that, I thought, wow, I really, I wasn't ready for so much being out of my control because in my ideal world, I'd be working on this every night, cranking it out and I could finish it rather quickly. And that just wasn't the situation we were in. And so I, it taught me a lot about just being patient and relaxing and understanding that you can't really put a timetable on some things. Sometimes you have to work through stuff, you have to work through songs, you have to work through stuff in life. And you can't say that you know, this issue or that issue is gonna be resolved in a month and then I'll have the, the mental capacity to work on an album. You just don't know what's gonna happen and you have to roll with it. And you've been listening to Mitchell Biggs and he's a Detroit hip hop producer and you've never heard of him and maybe you will and maybe you won't. And that's not the point. We've done many music stories here on this show from everybody from Tupac to Merle Haggard, from Johnny Cash to House of Pain. And so music's music to us. Our Miles Davis is a real favorite. And Rostropovich, the great conductor. And of course, our hour on Vladimir Horowitz may be my favorite musical hour of all. And I'm not a big classical music guy, but what a story about a great musician who came to America to experience not just freedom in the ways we normally think, but artistic freedom. And that's what Mitchell's doing in, in his home studio and what young people around this country are doing in home studios, trying to get the vibe, trying to get the flow, trying to make magic, and it's hard. Mitchell Big's story, a Detroit hip-hop producer's story here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you great stories about music, sports, history, work, marriage, and even public policy when it hits the pavement and affects you, the listener. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this next story. No one has more resilience or matches my practical, tactical brilliance. You want to fight for your land back? I my right hand man back. Get your right hand man back. No, you gotta get your right hand man back. I mean, you gotta put the button to the land, but the sooner the better to get your right hand man back. You might be asking, what the heck am I listening to? And if you've been listening closely, you might be asking, are they rapping about the Founding Fathers? 
Roses? Or you might be saying, that's one of my favorite songs. This song, Guns and Ships, was from the Broadway musical Hamilton. The surprising smash hit given that it was a musical about a founding father. Alexander Hamilton. And a musical that used the genre of rap to talk about a dead white founding father at that. But come on, tell me you're at least not somewhat intrigued by this absurdity. That's got to be leading the guy on our $10 bill to be rolling in his grave. And one of the other Hamilton songs, A Farmer Refuted, shows Alexander Hamilton singing it. But surely that's not how it went down in real life. Of course, Hamilton didn't sing publicly. Most of the Founding Fathers were just a wee bit too stiff for that. No, but that's not what I mean. Hamilton didn't identify himself publicly with the words, the words that the musical used to create this song. His own words. Hamilton wrote them, but didn't sign them under his name. He made himself anonymous, specifically... He called himself, quote-unquote, an anonymous friend. Now, you might consider himself a coward for not attaching his name to it, or you might not. The year was 1774, and Alexander Hamilton, then a 17-year-old orphan born out of wedlock on a tiny Caribbean island, found himself at King's College in New York City far from home. His childhood writing landed him there. Noted for its, quote, bombastic excesses with such verve and gusto that it moved the island community to come together and collect a fund to send the young chap to the big city. And the encouragement only encouraged him to write more. I am not thrown away And how could he not? A revolution was underway. The Boston Massacre occurred four years earlier. Paul Revere and Samuel Adams, yes, that Samuel Adams that inspired the beer, helped inspire a riot against the British for taxing them without representation for them in the British Parliament. And the British shot and killed five Americans. Then one year earlier came the throwing of British tea into the ocean, the Boston Tea Party. And then that very year came the forming of a protest government to the British, the Continental Congress. And let's just say that every American wasn't gung-ho about it. At the beginning, the majority of the people were against the revolution. That's Daniel Mark Epstein, the author of The Loyal Son, the book on the greatest microcosm of America's divisions, the division of Benjamin Franklin and his own son, William. His father visited him and he did everything he could to try to get him to come over to the side of the revolutionaries because that was his side and the family's side and William refused. And William ended up being the last royal governor to do the king's business in America. 
stubbornly refused to leave the governor's mansion and had to be taken away bodily and was put into the worst prison in America, the Litchfield Jail, where he was in solitary confinement with bread and water for 18 months and suffered terribly. Franklin said nothing had ever hurt him so bad in his entire life. Whatever side you claimed, you were staking a claim to, endangering your life. Out of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence who declared, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor on behalf of this cause, nine of them did lose their lives, 17 of them lost their fortunes, making it over a third of them who lost the first two, but none of them lost the third, their sacred honor. This reality is why one-third of Americans didn't take a side in 1776. They were just hoping to survive. And according to Brad Smith, the chairman of the Center for Competitive Politics, it likely was just one of the reasons, a very understandable one, why the 17-year-old Hamilton and many of the founding fathers wrote anonymously. But there were other reasons, too. Hamilton's very first published writing was a piece that he published under the title A Friend of America, and he was responding to arguments made by various loyalist preachers. Loyal to the British crown. In particular, Episcopalian Bishop Samuel Seabury, although he didn't know it was Samuel Seabury because Seabury himself used a pseudonym. He used the name A Farmer. So Hamilton responded with this letter called A Friend of America, and then Seabury, still anonymously, they didn't know who, the two of them didn't know who they were talking to. Seabury responded, and Hamilton then published this paper called A Farmer Refuted, which he published under the name A Sincere Friend of America. Apparently he thought a friend of America wasn't enough. So that's the history of it. And it was very common in those days for people to write under pseudonyms or to publish anonymously for a number of reasons, including that they wanted to not necessarily have their political disagreements overflow into the social areas where they may interact or business where they may interact. They wanted to sometimes not have their you know, harsh, plain language said to one another interfere with their ability to reach compromises on other political matters. And, and above all, there was sort of a concept that readers should look at the arguments involved and that by publishing things under pseudonyms or anonymously, you forced people to deal with the arguments rather than to attack the messenger, rather than to attack the speaker. There's a good chance that the United States would not exist were it not for anonymous speech. I think the, the role of Thomas Paine's writings in particular, Common Sense and then The Crisis, were very, very important. And you wouldn't have wanted to publish those under your own name in, in that time because you would have risked perhaps your own death. And great job on that, Alex, and what a piece of history. And by the way, it's not just speech, people's donations to causes. Well, those are private matters, and we're going to be getting into the NAACP and the state of Alabama. Is there were people in Alabama, any white people who supported the cause of desegregation. 
and they gave to the NAACP. And at a certain point in time, the state of Alabama came into the NAACP and said, we want those names. And we know why the state wanted those names. They wanted to out those people, have the Klan deter those people from doing the right thing. There's a history of anonymous speech, anonymous donations, and my goodness, the ultimate anonymous act, the vote. Anonymous speech, Alexander's anonymous speech, the Federalist Papers themselves, folks, written under anonymous names by three great Americans. More on this subject, it's a big one, here on Our American Stories. stories and our next story comes to us courtesy of the Pacific Legal Foundation and today you'll hear from Anastasia Bowden about a law that has stifled small businesses in our country here's our own Monty Montgomery who brings you this story our story begins in the small town of Aberdeen Ohio here's Anastasia Bowden of the Pacific Legal Foundation with more Our protagonist here is Philip Truesdell. He grew up with modest means on a farm. He dropped out of school after ninth grade, but he was always determined to make it, to provide for himself and his family. He's a family man through and through. He eats dinner with his kids and grandkids once a week. And so he's always been a bit of a born entrepreneur, you know, scrappy, um, taking opportunities as he sees them. And a few years back, he was actually working for the local power plant, but it shut down. And so he knew that he needed to find something new because he had to get a job. And he also wanted to keep his kids close to him. He didn't want them to leave. He had grandkids and he wanted to maintain that close relationship and proximity. So he was driving one day and he saw an ambulance on the side of the road with a for sale sign. And he thought to himself, hey, that looks like a good opportunity for a new business. So he called up his daughter and he said, let's start an ambulance business. And they were off. And Philip quickly found out that he was providing a much needed service to his community. He and his daughter and his son have grown this company to seven ambulances and they specialize in taking people, mainly not in emergency situations, they don't do 911 calls, they just provide transportation for people who are confined to a stretcher or who have IVs. You know, those people who are sick or have muscle weakness or, you know, for other reasons they can't sit up and they can't take an Uber or taxi. They need an ambulance to get around and they're doing well and they live just a mile from the Kentucky border. So they thought, hey, let's do business in Kentucky too. And in fact, they have a lot of clients who say, hey, can you take me just across the border into Kentucky? But when they tried to go to Kentucky, they realized it was not quite as easy as it had been in Ohio. And they encountered a roadblock. A roadblock called Certificate of Need Laws, otherwise known as Competitor's Veto Laws 
which started out with good intentions, but ended up catering to those with exactly the opposite. Well, these laws originated in the late 19th century, and so they're really a relic of the past, and they're based on a fundamental misunderstanding of economics and the role of competition in society. And nowadays, even though they had good intentions, they've sort of devolved into this protectionism, you know, handout to uh, entrenched business interests. So when they were originally passed, they applied only to railroads. And the theory was, hey, railroads take a lot of private investment and people aren't going to invest in them unless they have some sort of monopoly protection. So anybody who wants to build a railroad, we're going to make them get a certificate of need. And what that does is it forces somebody to come in and prove that there's a need for another business, another a railroad business and you know whatever whatever merit uh, there is for certificate of need laws with regards to railroads there's simply no argument that we need to block competition in industries like transportation or um, medicine where competition has been shown to you know drive innovation and lower prices and and entrepreneurial freedom it's been shown to be indisputably good and yet we had this situation where certificate of need laws carried over from railroads to newer forms of transportation just as a matter of historical accident once you get these laws on the books they sort of carry over because of inertia so they went from railroads to then you know whatever the newest form of transportation was um, cars and taxis and then we see them now in the moving industry and all sorts of modern forms of transportation but that begs the question how did certificate of need laws even get applied to the healthcare industry in Kentucky in the 1970s, the federal government got the bright idea that we should apply certificate of need laws to medicine. They thought that blocking competition would lower prices. It would decrease, quote, overinvestment in medicine, which was driving up prices. And the federal government tried this grand experiment by incentivizing states to adopt certificate of need laws. And within, you know, 15 to 20 years, the federal government realized it had done something really bad. Certificate of need laws had not driven down costs. In fact, they had driven up costs and had no measurable effect on quality. And that's because of the way that they work in practice. In practice, the government isn't engaged in some sort of careful balancing act about how, you know, how much competition is needed. In practice, what the government does is when an entrepreneur applies, they have to give notice to all of the existing businesses. All of the existing businesses can then protest the application for any reason, including the bare reason that they don't want new competition. And that's exactly what happened to Philip, who found himself arguing in front of a courtroom for his company against those who wanted to put him out of business. You know, it's very hard to do that. How do you prove that a new business is needed except by opening your doors and finding out? Uh, it's hard to amass evidence in advance, um, especially if it's a new service that's never really been used before. How could, how could Apple prove that the iPhone was gonna be needed before it simply just tried it out? It didn't know for sure, it just it thought it might be and we let them try. But here in Certificate of Need Laws, you have to sort of prove it somehow. And what's worse is that the existing businesses can come to your hearing and testify that your business is not needed because they can service any existing demand. So why bring somebody else in? I can do it myself and you're going to hurt me. And that's what they say. And based on that statement alone, the government will then deny the application for a new business. And it's not just an issue in Kentucky. 
we see them in over half of states, about 37 states now have certificate of need laws for medicine, um, meaning entrepreneurs like Philip Truesdell, who wants to expand his ambulance business, and uh, entrepreneurs everywhere who have new and innovative medical services, or hospitals who just wanna add hospital beds, or mental health institutions who wanna add beds to their institution. All of these great services that are really needed are being shut out by the existing businesses because of certificate of need laws. Which makes no sense, because for companies like Philips, the need is not just there, it's essential. And the impact of certificate of need laws hits everyone from ambulances to hospitals. Recently, the Pegasus Institute, which is a think tank in Kentucky, did a study to measure the effect of certificate of need laws when it comes to ambulances. And it found that in Kentucky, wait times were significantly higher and the amount of ambulances was significantly lower than in states without certificate of need laws. So it found that in Louisville, for example, the average wait time for an emergency ambulance is 10 minutes and 19 seconds. The national average is eight minutes. Now, two minutes may not seem like much, but when you're in an emergency situation, two minutes is everything. And so this is having a real impact on the outcomes for people who need emergency care in Kentucky. I mean, part of the motivation of certificate of need laws was this assumption that, hey, if we restrict supply, we will boost the profits of these hospital companies who will then um, have an incentive to go into rural areas Areas because they'll have excess cash flow and, and they'll realize that it is economically um, uh, feasible for them to go to rural areas. So there's this assumption that we would increase charity care and we would increase hospitals in rural areas if we if we gave hospitals monopoly privilege. But, you know, common sense, I think, and, and basic economics tells you that that probably doesn't bear out because when you restrict supply, you restrict supply. You get fewer hospitals um, and higher prices that just go straight to those very few hospitals. So what we found was actually certificate of need laws have resulted in 30% fewer rural hospitals per every 100,000 Kentucky residents than other states. So even though these laws are based on the premise that we're we're going to increase hospital percentages across the country. In fact, they're just leading to there being fewer hospitals, fewer hospital beds, fewer places for people to go when they're sick. But Philip wasn't going to take the sitting down. He fought back and continues to fight back against the companies and government that pushed him out of the state of Kentucky using certificate of need laws to their advantage and is awaiting his day in court to overturn that ruling. He's somebody who doesn't just let things happen to him. And he was particularly insulted with the way that his hearing went down when he went to Kentucky. When he went to Kentucky, he just assumed that it would be, you know, just as it was in Ohio, that it would be pretty easy to open a company. But when he went to Kentucky, these businesses came in and protested him and sent them to a hearing where they treated him you know, like he was a criminal for wanting to start a new business. Those businesses' attorneys asked him at the hearing, you know, do you know how much business you're going to take away from these companies? And he thought to himself, why aren't they asking what I'm going to do for the community? And he was really offended. He felt that that they just treated him like he was nothing or like he didn't know what he was doing. And so he was very determined to fight back. And that's part of a bigger fight. It's not just to get the certificate of need law struck down. It's to preserve entrepreneurial freedom um, and the right to start a business without the government letting your competitors shut you down. And a special thanks to Anastasia Bowden. 
and she works at the Pacific Legal Foundation, and they represent people like Philip Truesdo all over this great country, and they do it absolutely for free. Go to the Pacific Legal Foundation's website and donate. And my goodness, wait times, well, the national average is eight minutes, and in Kentucky, it's 10.19. You've just got to love Philip Truesdo. He buys one ambulance, it turns into seven, and when he crosses a border, suddenly he crosses the border of common sense too. And he fights. He doesn't let things happen to him. Thank goodness. Philip Truesdo's story here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And now, the second part of my two-part conversation with one of the most extraordinary leaders in education. Laura Sandifer is the co-founder of Acton Academy, a network of over 270 parent-created but student-led schools where every child is on a hero's journey to find their unique calling that can change the world. The schools have guides rather than teachers. Students self-pace their own education and can have a half a dozen apprenticeships by the time they graduate high school. You can hear part one at OurAmericanStories.com and search for Acton Academy. And now let's go to Laura with part two. People don't often talk about this when they're talking about schools and learning and education, but I think it's a love story. I think the thing that binds us all together, the people in this network, there are now 271 Acton Academies that are all founded by parents whose children are in the school. So that is a fuel of love that's driving just simply the the startup of an Acton Academy is this desire for our children to find their own potential. Well, to me, that's a love story. And I think every love story includes the agony and the ecstasy. And I think when we acknowledge that human relationships are hard and life is hard, but it's also beautiful, that that is a, that is a bonding force. So we're not all about just getting into college and finding a job, we're talking about the identity of a human being. And I think that that, I can't describe it as anything else but love. And it's a love for this gift of life. And it's a love for the curious mind. And it's a love for joy and for even fun. I mean, there's lots of laughs. There are tears in, in, in an act in studio, but there's lots of laughter and joy. And it's just a gratitude and a humility about this gift of life we're given. And I don't know how to explain it, except that it's that same haunting feeling that humans have experienced since the beginning of humankind, when when they would just sit out around a campfire and share stories at the end of the day. And I think 
at the end of the day, we want to sit around and share stories with each other. And we want to, we want to learn from each other. And it goes way beyond just a specific set of content that we should know. I mean, yes, there's things we should know and learning is fun, but the truth is we really want to know how to experience life well with other people. That means learning how to give an authentic apology. I mean, that's a skill set we actually deliver at Acton. It's really how to become a friend and how to be kind and how to be honest. I think that's one of the, the most difficult in terms of pain learning experiences is when someone lies on their work and they fake their points that they earned or something and, and they're held accountable and they're required to write an apology in order to be welcomed back into the community. So, you know, it's facing where we fail and it's facing when we aren't virtuous because we're not all virtuous all the time. And so, but, but being able to admit that that's pretty huge. So I think it's it's very gritty, it's very earthy, it's not beautiful and systematic because we're talking about humans. And I think at the end of the day, just embracing the mystery of it all is a pretty exciting place to be. It's very different from other schools where you, you don't want to end with mystery, you want to end with assessment and moving on to something different. We're We're just going to relish in the idea that we don't have all the answers but we're enjoying the journey very much. Let's talk about the data and the assessment, because how do you fare? In, in, in other words, as you, as you embarked on this journey, you had to be thinking, well, how are our kids going to measure up? How are they going to do on standardized tests? How did that work out? And, and how did you feel about it when it was happening? Because you had to really worry about that on some, some level. Absolutely. I was scared to death because I thought, gosh, what if, you know, what if something falls through the cracks and they really aren't learning math? So yes, the very first year we decided to do a basic standardized test at the beginning and at the end of the year. And that was it. And it was just, we weren't going to talk about it much. We were just going to do it. And I remember the day that at the end of the year, when Kaylee, our wonderful first guide, she delivered the test, the Stanford 10 standardized test. And the day came when she was going to give me the results. And I thought, oh boy, you know, here we go. This could all be a big flop and we're going to have to start over and figure out what to do. And when she sat down, she goes, Laura, they all moved up. It was on average three and a half grade levels. And I, we started laughing because we're like, oh, okay, I guess we don't have to worry then. And we decided then every year we will deliver a standardized test because we do want data. Data is a good thing. We just don't want to waste time giving meaningless tests, but we do give a test every single year so that we can see, you know, the results. We've had to change tests three or four times because the children end up maxing out the test. So, you know, the middle schoolers were maxing out the high school test, which meant that they were plateauing from then on. And so we, we changed the tests up. And after a few years, the parents stopped asking for the results. And that was a wonderful sign when we finally got parents who actually could see their children thriving without the need for those test results. Now, we get a lot of criticism saying that we're just, you know, skimming the cream of the crop kids and those are the only ones who come to Acton. But that's actually not true. We were surprised when we started testing at the very beginning of the year when we were recruiting, you you know, growing and recruiting a majority of our 
students were coming in below grade level and then a smaller percentage were way above grade level. And we realized what we were attracting were people who were either bored in the traditional school or people who were not doing well at all in the traditional school. So, but in general, those two groups would also progress. Now it's on average um, three grade level each year. And we're listening to Laura Sandifer, co-founder of Acton Academy, also the author of Courage to Grow, How Acton Academy Turns Learning Upside Down. When we continue, more with Laura Sandifer and her story and the story of Acton Academy, a love story. It continues here on Our American Story. continue with Our American Stories and Laura Sandifer's story. She's the co-founder of Acton Academy, a network of over 270 parent-created but student-led schools across the world. Let's return to Laura on their students advancing an average of three grade levels each year. So that, that data is real, but what the, the, mo- the more important data, in my opinion, is what we see once the children start in middle school and high school, they, they gain apprenticeships out in the real world. So they're in charge of discovering what their interests are and then finding someone in their field of interest who will hire them for an apprenticeship. So they're getting out in the world, getting real world experience. And we ask each apprenticeship mentor to write a recommendation or give feedback at the end of it. And to me, those are the feedback pieces, the data pieces that are most interesting, because when these young people are out in the world actually doing real work, they're on time, they're reliable, they're problem solvers, they're trustworthy, and those are the things that I think will prove to serve them as they go off into the world on their own. So it's that real world feedback plus the academic feedback, but honestly, those online programs they work with every day give more data than you can possibly imagine, you know, how long your child worked on a math problem, for example, you can, if you wanted to, you could analyze so much different data just based on the online learning programs. But to me, it's more of the, you know, how are they doing when they step out and have to communicate with adults they don't know? How does that go for them? And that's when I'm excited to, to, I have full confidence that they can go out and get jobs and communicate well wherever they go in the world. I think you'll appreciate this. I had a really high LSAT, went to a great law school, and I taught at Stanley Kaplan. And I was everybody's favorite teacher because kids would come in, and if they didn't have good LSATs, I would encourage them to go to law school any way they could because it didn't matter what their LSATs were, and it didn't matter what law school they went to, that they could still be great lawyers, and that the LSAT, even their college grades, had very little to do materially with how good of a prosecutor you might be. In other words, how the system was judging you as a potential lawyer had nothing to do with your ability to be a potential lawyer. And it was just a great sort. And this was the best way they could think of sorting people. It freed so many people. I had letters for a decade after. I went to Seton Hall Night School, and I'm a prosecutor, and that was always my dream. 
Thank you. I didn't get a good LSAT score, and I was a C student in college, but I'm a lawyer today, and I'm a damn good lawyer. Um, talk about uh, that, because that has got to give you're, – you're bypassing a lot of these filters, Laura, that leave good and talented people out of things they should be in. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And I think, you know, it's not always a straight line path to know what you want to do anyway. So I think trying on a lot of different jackets along the way and seeing if you like something is a really good idea. And that's what those apprenticeships do. So I'll give an an example. We had one wonderful young woman who wanted to be a lawyer. So, of course, she wanted her apprenticeship to be at a law firm. Well, she was only 14 years old and the lawyers were like, we can't really we can't really hire a 14 year old to do this, but we'll, you know, you seem like a nice student and you're curious. We will give you an opportunity to come volunteer and have, have a free internship with us. So, so she did that. And then the head of the firm called me and said, actually, we would love to offer her a job. I think there's something she can do here. So this young girl started kind of progressing in her internship levels at this law firm. She was sitting in with clients and, getting to work on some immigration issues. And she ended up taking an online law school course at Penn. And then after the experience, she came back and she said, that was a good experience, but I found out I don't want to be a lawyer. She turns out to be a, an engineer. It took her a while to figure that out. If she had just followed her test scores, she got a perfect score on the PSAT she had perfect grades on the pre-law classes she was taking. She could have easily followed that route, but then her heart would not have been happy 20 years down the road. She had to explore a bit, play around a bit until she found something that actually made her excited to wake up in the morning. So I think another, you know, kind of the different side of that coin is you could do really well on tests and just be shuffled through a system because that's kind of what you're good at on the tests, but it doesn't make your heart sing at the end of the day. So that's what I think is the surprising fun thing we're finding is that people kind of take a path that is not expected. And so that's, that's what I'm, that's what I'm always curious about is not what people look like they're going to be good in, but what they end up trying on and exploring. We have another quick story about a young girl who decided she wanted to be a baker and she got her apprenticeship doing that. And Loved it, did really well, but then she realized actually what she loved was helping other people learn to be a baker. She ended up then realizing, oh, it's education I want to go into. And so that's the route that she's taking. And so I think, I think just letting go of expectations of what paths should look like is a really good place to start. And once again, we get circle back to that idea of being surprised. I think being willing to let go of expectations and be surprised is a good stance for educators and parents to hold on to. You know, David Epstein's book, Range, gets into this idea that what you think you might want to do as a young athlete, for instance, ends up being, well, you're interested in this other sport. And he looked at Tiger Woods, who focused on golf, and Roger Federer, who didn't play tennis till he was like 13. Uh, and no one pushed him into tennis. He just discovered it. And a lot of the other sports that he played, he liked. And the cross-training helped him. But the idea that people know what they want to do when they're 14 or 18, or I didn't know what I really wanted to do until I was about 35. And my dad, thank goodness, always said, just keep figuring it out, son. I mean, I had a, a great educator who came from almost the act and spirit of discover it. Keep trying to discover what you're really meant to do. 
And luckily, I had a parent like that. Many of my peers, uh, if they had ever decided to go to a great law school and not practice law, it would have been a big disappointment to them. My dad could have cared less if I didn't practice law. Didn't mean anything to him. That's such a gift. I love that. I think that's so, that's just a wonderful gift to give children. I think another gift that's wonderful to give children is also the idea that having a deliberate practice, getting really good at mastering a skill is also really important so that you, you, you can do specific things in the world. It's important to know how to do something, not just to know something. And so that's another element, I think, um, really holding high standards of excellence for whatever you want to go into, um, being the best at that and working really hard to improve every single day. That's one thing that I think people are surprised at. How, how can children hold standards of excellence for each other? People think that's kind of impossible. But at Acton, it's pretty simple. The idea of excellence is an individual thing. It's me- you're measuring yourself against what you did last time. So the first time you do something, you say, was that your best effort? Yes. Okay, that's excellent. The next time you compare the same thing to your previous example and say, did it get better? Did you improve? Yes. Then that's excellent. And then finally, when you get to the point that you're getting really high in the level of that skill, you compare it to a world-class example or you win a competition. Um, So it's constantly improving against yourself. And that's something that I think is also important for young people to have, not just kind of popping around and trying all sorts of different things, but really honing in and trying and having a deliberate practice that you, you work hard to get good at specific skills. And then you can use those in ways that make the world a better place. We talk about finding a calling and some people think, well, what if someone doesn't find a calling? What, no, not everyone's going to be a president or a prime minister or a CEO of a big company. And we're like, no, a calling is simply being the best at what you are. You could own, you know, a laundromat, but change the entire culture of a community because how you interact with your customers and your employees, you know, the stories of like the mailman who, who changes the world because everyone is so excited to see him every day. He knows everybody's name in the neighborhood. So the the idea of a calling isn't grandiose. It's just being really good where you are in the world and using your gift, your skill to make that little neck of the world a little bit better. And that's so true. Our own Lance Reed, who runs the local Chick-fil-A, it's a calling. And there's a princess ball every year and a thousand people show up in our little town. And there's a, a date night for couples to come out and listen to good, clean, wholesome comedy. And all that they do at that local Chick-fil-A to integrate into the community shows you that making a chicken sandwich, well, that can be a calling, too. I love what she said about learning how to not just know something, but do something. And getting that mastery of skill sets is so important. And the tests are important, but mastering relationships, mastering and being good at being a worker, being a good team player, showing up on time, problem-solving, How we do life is what Acton Academy is so interested in. When we come back, more with Laura Sandifer, author of Courage to Grow, How Acton Academy Turns Learning Upside Down. And if you want to learn more about attending an Acton Academy or launching one in your neighborhood, go to actonacademy.org. This is Our American Story.
And we continue with our American stories and Laura Sandifer's story. She's the co-founder of Acton Academy. And let's return to Laura on thinkers and doers that have shaped Acton's model, starting with this guy named Socrates. Well, Socrates was the ancient Greek who taught young people through only asking questions. And one of his famous quotes that we think about a lot is the wisest man in the world because he knew he knew nothing. So he is our great questioner and his method of not only just asking questions, but a deep faith and trust in young people to discover truth on their own. Those, those are grounding ideas for us at Acton Academy. We also have as one of our heroes that contributed to our design of Acton, Maria Montessori. So the Italian physician who studied children by observing them. And instead of having a learning system done to children, she actually followed the child and came up with a brand new way of looking at the learning environment. She worked with orphans, children who had been abandoned, basically, and found that when she created an environment and gave them choice and work to do, they, you know, academically progressed to catch up with children who had been in fine learning institutions. Her belief that following the child, trusting them to work at their own pace, but setting up the environment for them to be able to make choices and solve their own problems was critical. She also was the person who believed that the mixed ages, that peer-to-peer learning was critical. So her science, really is solid and has been proven, obviously, over the century that people have been using Maria Montessori's method. But her ideas of children making choices, but being bound with clear boundaries was really significant in our formation that we want our eagles to have freedom of choice. But we also know that having boundaries, clear consequences for crossing a boundary is critical. But what I claim most from Maria Montessori that helps me every single day is she came to this as a scientist. So every day it was with fresh eyes, watching as if for the first time what a child was doing. I think so often as adults, teachers, parents, we carry baggage around our thoughts about children, what they did the day before, and we, you know, we're still frustrated with how they did that. And if you could come every single day, leave your own baggage at the door, walk in with fresh eyes, it changes everything in how you deal with children. So that's one of the things that I personally love a lot about what Maria Montessori brought to the world. Another mentor and hero to us is Sugata Mitra, who I don't know if you know his work, um, the hole in wall experiment he did in the slums of Calcutta, but he basically put a computer, like an ATM machine kind of computer in the middle of these slums and, and had cameras and just watched what would happen. His, his theory was children can learn without teachers. And he, his studies are just so shockingly wonderful that he found children gathering around the computer, never having worked with one before. And pretty soon they were hacking in and found the Disney, <laughs> the Disney website. And then they suddenly were learning English, and it became chaotic and crazy. And then he observed that it was the 12-year-old girls who came in and started organizing the young people. His, his work was so profound because it really, for the first time in recent years, put into question the role of teacher 
he came and visited Acton Academy and has been just a, a wonderful friend and mentor to us. So Sugata Mitra is another one. But, but one that I think is a, was a really special friend and hero to us was a man named Oliver DeMille. He wrote a book called The Thomas Jefferson Education, Teaching a Generation of Leaders for the 21st Century. And we were just intrigued with his thoughts and so invited him over to our house. And as we were sitting there talking in our living room, he started sharing about his own background. And he said that even though his parents were teachers and they didn't watch a lot of television or any, you know, have lots of videos in their house, it was all based on books in their house. He couldn't read for longer than he was supposed to not be able to read. And he went to school and his father was the principal of the school and he was performing pretty badly on the test. And so the school district decided that he should be sent to the special education class for the students with special learning needs. And so he was dragged away from his friends and put into the special class. And he described how worried he was as a child and how scared and sad he was to be put in this situation. And then after not too long, his father walked into that classroom and took him by the hand and just walked him out and led him down the hall to the advanced class and opened the door and just said to Oliver, you belong here. And Oliver shared that with those words, everything changed. And sure enough, he became a fluent reader and a wonderful thinker. But what he said changed Jeff and me because he said, my father taught me that no one should work with children unless they believe that each child is a genius. And it was his conversation with us that day that made us really pursue that one idea. Each child is a genius and we would never ever hire anyone who thought otherwise or questioned that belief. So those are a few of the mentors and heroes we pulled from. And Sal Khan also of Khan Academy was an early hero of ours and has become a, a friend. And we just admire so much what he has done for the world by freeing up young people to learn anything through Khan Academy. Yeah, and at their own pace, Laura, which is so important for learning. It, it is, I think, uh, what technology has delivered to the individual learner that nothing else had ever been able to do like it before. Talk about the role of technology. You've got Socrates, and this is before Christ, and you've got technology in someone like Sal Khan, who was born probably, what, in the 1960s or 70s, maybe even 80s. Um, talk about the merger of old and new, but particularly the role of technology in Acton Academies. Well, to me, technology is what frees us all to learn anything. And it, it, in a way, it's miraculous that you can get instant feedback on what you're working on, which makes the student-teacher ratio one-to-one -one because through those programs, they adapt to where you are and you get feedback just for your own work. That's pretty astounding, and, and it's not necessarily fun. We think of technology as a tool. We don't think it's the, the be-all, end-all to everything, but it's a magnificent tool when you know how to use it. So we use this tool, but we also know that more importantly than the technology is the mindset of the person using it and being purposeful in why you're using it. So, you know, you've heard the saying, if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, you see everything as a nail. We know that technology can do some things, but it can't do everything. And what we have found is most important is a human relationship behind the tool of technology. So having a mentor or a guide 
who supports you and encourages you when you feel like quitting, having a culture, an ethos with a, behind you when you move to work with these technological tools. I've, I've taken a lot of online courses that I end up just quitting halfway through because I just don't feel the personal connection or the necessity to finish. I got what I needed and I just leave it. And I think that that's not what we want. What we really want is people to know what tool to use and when to use it and then get off and do something meaningful in the world with it. And you're listening to Laura Sandifer, Courage to Grow, How Acton Academy Turns Learning Upside Down is a terrific read. Go to Amazon and buy it. Also, to learn more about attending an Acton Academy or launching one in your neighborhood, go to actonacademy.org. My goodness, it's so true what Montessori taught Laura, the lesson, that primary one of the fact that we all carry baggage, ours and the baggage about our own children, and we've got to leave that at the door every day. Look forward, not backwards. And also, Mitra's studies in India, kids can learn without teachers. You bet. And, of course, DeMille and that lesson that the father taught the son about genius being in every child. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, this great education story, a love story, as Laura so well put it, because in the end, that's what really, really teaching is all about. More with Laura Sandifer, her story, and Acton Academy's story, here on Our American Story. Continue with our American stories and the final portion of our two-part story with Laura Sandifer, co-founder of Acton Academy, a network of over 270 parent-created but student-led schools across the world. Let's return to Laura. There's there's truths in this world, and the human relationship is something that none of us can really undo. The human drive to have a life that is meaningfully connected to others is probably the most motivating factor for anything. So the questions that we have that drive the Acton journey, I think are, are important for all humans. And this is why some of the most transformed people we deal with are the parents whose children go to Acton, because maybe people haven't asked them these questions. And the three big questions we deal with are, did I accomplish something meaningful? Was I a good person? Whom did I love and who loved me? So this idea is we all want to learn, but the idea of learning is so that you can do something with it. The end of the hero's journey is not just finding the treasure. The end of the hero's journey is returning home to use that treasure to help others. So all of this is about doing something meaningful for the world because that's what haunts our hearts. And that's why the ancient Greece, those, those myths, they're all about the haunting of doing something important in your life. I remember in my own life, um, I, after college, went into aviation insurance. And I lived in London and then in New York City. And I remember sitting in a cubicle. I was on the 52nd floor of this high rise. And I lived in Brooklyn, but would take the subway straight into the bottom of my building and take the elevator up. And it was one winter night. So at five o'clock, it was already pitch dark. And I remember sitting there in that cubicle going, I haven't seen the sky in days. And there's a possibility I could wake up 
10 years from now and still be in this cubicle and rarely have seen the sky. And it was in that moment of, of literal darkness, but also psychological darkness. I thought, this isn't what, this isn't what I was called to do. Although, you know, it was, it was a fine job. And for some people that would be great. And it was at that moment that I said, I've got to go back. I want to be in an environment where people are learning all the time. And I went to my boss and I said, I'm so sorry, but I want to be a teacher. And he looked at me and just said, good for you. I'm really excited you made that decision. And we said goodbye and I went back and, and that's when I went back and got my master's. But it was that, that haunting feeling that I think is what drives us as humans, whether we acknowledge it or not. And what we're doing is simply acknowledging it and calling it out and saying, you deserve to find a calling and change the world. So talk about growth, your worries, and where you are now. The parent part of this equation is the hardest part of all because um, it's a stretch for parents to send their child to an Acton Academy, not just because, you know, it's a private school. And I know there are financial sacrifices, even though we try to keep it as low cost as possible. But the stretch is we embrace failure and we don't intervene when there's a struggle and we don't tell your child what to do. So for parents to enter into that is, is a big leap from what our culture asks of parents. I think parents identify with, you know, it's, it's important to parents to have their ch children be achieving good things because it makes them look like a good parent. We kind of take the opposite approach and it's really hard for parents. So, uh, so I admire the parents who join us. It's a stretch. And we actually, part of my job is simply encouraging parents when things get hard. But we had a few courageous parents start with us at the very beginning. And if it weren't for them, none of this would have happened, but they trusted us. I think a turning point for me was when we did start to grow because other people thought, oh, this is a place where children are happy and I just want my child to be happy. So people started to apply and I would accept them. And then when things got hard, they would want to quit and they would leave. And it would always be a pretty traumatic departure because it wasn't, you know, they didn't feel like it was a good thing we were necessarily doing. The ones who stayed though, this, this is what I think is important to think about when you think of learning. It's, this is a long-term goal we're talking about. Learning happens slowly and not linearly. Very often it's in cycles and it's, you know, roller coaster. But if you can keep your eye on the horizon while enjoying the day, that's, that's the ticket to this working. So the parents who were able to do that were along for the ride and loving it. So we basically have gotten better and better at describing exactly what the Acton journey is. So when someone's applying, there are no mysteries. And I, I say, you know, your child will cry, your child would get, will get hurt, but your child will also learn to get back up and get in the game and stick with something when it gets hard. And so we've gotten better about talking to parents about the journey, about what we promise to do and deliver. For parents who choose this, they are people who probably had a loving but rough childhood on their own. They know that learning is hard. They know that life can be hard. And they want their child to experience that so that they can be confident problem solvers in their own life. Parents who are wanting more of a prestigious, degree, because they think that is what is the ticket to success in the future. Those are the ones that probably would not be a fit for Acton Academy. 
we aim for competence more than prestige in our outcomes. And so it's not necessarily a prestigious degree, but, but what parents see that they get excited about is what their child can do. One of my favorite things that they can do is what I hear from the grandparents. They come to me almost always, I get the same response from grandparents when they come visit the school is, I have the most fun conversations with my grandchildren now. Thank you so much. What's fun about the Socratic method is children gain a voice and are able to talk about anything. They're not afraid to disagree with someone or to be disagreed with. It's not an emotional conflict when there's a disagreement. It's a fun experience. So the idea of simple family communication around the dinner table being a metric for a school doing a good job is, is one of my favorite ones. And we hear that most often from the grandparents who are so surprised when they come over and they can hold these wonderful conversations with their young grandchildren. So that's one of my favorite things. But the, I really give credit to the parents who choose this because it's, a, it's, a, it's not an easy journey. It is a wonderful, loving journey. But like I said earlier, love, love is not all about feeling good all the time. It's about letting go. And part of my job is to support parents through the letting go process, which is actually a real act of love, I think. Let's, uh, I wanted to close with a, a passage because I thought it was just so apropos. And it's uh, in Chapter 9, More Parents Pick Up the Torch. A magical twist was happening in my personal Acton Academy story. With each month that passed, I was growing. And so were the other parents who had committed to this journey with me. As our children launched into their hero's journeys, we parents were becoming braver. We were learning to kill our tendencies to project our personal desires onto our children and to protect them from difficulty. We were becoming learners again, even dreamers. That's spectacular, Laura. That's spectacular. Well, thank you. And I I still feel like I'm in that state of mind of, of learning and, and growing and I'm, I'm, I'm deeply curious where all of this will lead, but I also, I feel a yearning to find a new calling in my life. And so I think the idea of a calling just continues. You may not have one, you may have three or four in your life, but the idea that it's ongoing is really exciting to me. A mom came up to me the other day and she said, you know, I woke up the other day and I realized I'm, I keep telling my children to be on a hero's journey. And I realized I myself wasn't doing that. I was just living my humdrum life. And she said, I've had a yearning to have an urban farm and help some of the refugees in town with farming. And she went on in this story of how she has started this urban farm and she has found a group of refugees she's going to work with. She started, started talking so fast and so excitedly. And I thought, aha, yay, here's another parent who is finally finding a calling in our own life. And to me, that's the best parent. The best parent is someone who is living a happy life, not overly stressed, doing meaningful work. That's what you want your child to aspire to. And if you're stuck at home feeling stressed and unhappy and just forcing your children to do important work, that's not helpful. So if we parents can just live out our own best lives, we don't have to be the perfect parents. That story itself will be the teacher to our children. And you're listening to Laura Sandifer. And my goodness, what a beautiful hour. And to listen to our other hour spent on the story of her journey, her hero's journey, because boy, is she living one herself. 
with Acton Academy and all the parents doing the same. Go to OurAmericanStories.com and just look up Acton Academy on our search bar. Also, by all means, get the book Courage to Grow, How Acton Academy Turns Learning Upside Down. And you can learn more about attending an Acton Academy or launching one in your own neighborhood at actonacademy.org. And my goodness, there's so much good stuff here, especially that part about the biggest transformation occurring in the parents of Acton, learning to let go, learning the kids to direct their own journey. It's so important. And by the way, those three big questions that matter at Acton, did I accomplish something meaningful? Was I a good person? Who did I love and who loved me? My goodness, you can't ask more important questions to young people and to older people. And most importantly, I thought, was this idea of the hero's journey. And the key part is returning home and doing something important where we all live, something good and something meaningful. A remarkable story, Laura Sandifer's story. Her husband, Jeff, too, and the entire family went on this journey together. Their stories, Acton Academy's story, an unfolding one here on Our American Stories.